the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon and welcome. It's the Thursday edition of The Ride Home, and we have a very full show for you today, so welcome along. Is that the first thing on your mind? It's how full the show is. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's a real question. Oh well, yeah. Well, I mean, of I course was, it is. It's I mean, a full show. Usually you say something about like oh like the weather no, no, no. or like I you know did, had got a bad night's sleep last no, night. No, I didn't say any of that. Or I had such a great lunch. Or like there was no preamble, and so you just went right no, into I the did. show. No, I just said full show because I'm looking at our in our show. Prep. And there is a lot on there. That's why I'm saying it's <laughs> a very full show. I'm just you know I guess I'm stating the obvious to you, but I'm telling our audience that uh, just uh, they should tune in because of that. Oh. Okay. okay. To give some detail yeah, to what John there, yeah. just said, happy to say that in the five o'clock hour of today's mm-hmm. show, we're talking about confession. I, this is just one of those things that separates the Roman Catholic from among us and the Protestant from among us. Really? Yes. Because confession, from my Protestant perspective, for you Catholics, I mean, you, you're not now, but you were, yep. is like something you have to go and do. It's a big deal. And then it's for, a scheduled thing that you do. And then for a lot of Protestants, you're like... You kind of do it on the fly. Yeah. I hate to say it, but it's kind of meh. It is kind of which meh. Which is shocking it's, to me. And it's terrible. I, I it don't understand it. It can't be good. I don't think so. But anyway... Okay. We're going to talk about that with our good friend, Charlie Camosi. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll kind of throw that back and forth. Like, what's good about one perspective? What's good about the other perspective? You know, how we can look at it. Confession. You look forward to that. Like I said, it's a full show. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Coming up also in the five o'clock hour, one quarter of young adults want to leave America. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. All right. I mean, it, d- we shouldn't assume the worst here because there's some varied reasons of why they would like sure. to. Sure. And right. uh, also, will the tie, the necktie ever make a comeback. <laughs> and then coming up in the four o'clock hour, we'll be talking about the introvert's guide to surviving the holidays. So if you are one of those ones who likes, you know, introverts unite separately in their own homes, uh, you might want to tune in yeah. for that. You're called to the Thanksgiving meal. Exactly. So show up, right? And a horse got loose on a plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just a, a little smattering of the stuff that you've already indicated, like John, I said, are going full, to populate today. Very show. full. Hey, uh, you know, Starbucks is on strike today. Right. Right. So if you were looking for a cup of coffee. Uh, You're going to have to go somewhere else. Especially in the East End. There are 16 unionized stores here in Pittsburgh. 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than most cities have. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So baristas are striking. They're saying, you know, the working conditions are just uh, horrific. So this you know is what raising I think awareness. The worst thing is, from my perspective, mm. is that the inside of every Starbucks is very depressing. Depressing? Gray. Brown. Oh, I don't think so. Oh, I do. The one uh, on Fifth Avenue in Oakland, I like that one. The big windows. I gravitate towards the oh, windows. Oh, that's not too bad because no. of all the windows. Yeah. But imagine every Starbucks looks like that, but without the windows. It's right. like you're walking into right. some, you know, 
depressive experience. I mean, I get, you know, the power of a union, but do you think working conditions are like, you know... Horrific in well, a, but for a barista. But don't you hate to say that about well, someone? Well, I'm saying who's, it. Yeah, okay. I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm just saying it because what do you get? You're getting scalded no, you're when right. you're making your latte yeah, or something. I, I mean, I don't know, but it is one right. of my top fours. Oh, oh it is. Yeah, it is. Well, then look at I just stole your thunder. Achy. Without further ado, then with the news stories. Here's the top four at four. Some music. Is it going? Okay, I couldn't hear it. Oh, there, oh, there we go. Wrong button. For Thursday, November 16th, 2023. Number one, John. Thank you. The Israeli military today said it continued to search through Gaza's largest hospital for further evidence that it is used by Hamas for military purposes. Israel, of course, is facing growing pressure to justify sending troops into a medical facility. So after a day of searching through the Al-Shifa hospital, questioning patient staff and displaced people, uh, Israel released footage of AK-47 grenades, battle vests with Hamas insignias, and other assorted military equipment that was hidden in the MRI wing Mm. of the hospital. In a video, an Israeli spokesperson pointed to a laptop, a handheld tactical radio, and a set of discs as evidence of a Hamas command center in the hospital. The laptop screen was blurred, and the spokesman didn't specify what was found on it. Read more about that at the Wall Street Journal. Number two. Thousands of Starbucks baristas across the country, as you already said, John, planning to strike today. That's fine. One of the coffee giant's biggest sales days of the year. Um, The Starbucks Workers United, which is the company's union, it represents 9,000 employees at 360 stores, picked today because it's Red Cup Day. It's an annual promo event where customers in Canada and the U.S. who purchase at least one holiday beverage receive a reusable Red Cup. Did you know that? I did not know that. I did not know that either. Uh, But this year, organizers are inviting customers to hold solidarity actions outside of non-union Starbucks stores to demand that Starbucks respect union rights. Double the number of stores are expected to shut down this year, and more than 220 events are expected to be held across the country. So go somewhere else to get your coffee. From CBS News, number three, lawyers for the city of Pittsburgh and a bus driver hurt in the Fern Hollow Bridge collapse sparred today in court over access to engineering records. Peter Giglioni, attorney for Pittsburgh regional transit driver Daryl Luciani, wants to subpoena records about the bridge from three engineering firms, but the city's trying to block him on grounds that state and federal statutes bar the info from being released. The two sides disagree about whether the statutes actually cover these records. I mean, seriously. I mean. I mean, really? You've got like, I, how about a little empathy here? Ex- and that's go, what I was okay, thinking. Okay, you fell off the bridge. Let us exactly. cut you a check how, for how about, X. How about we just sit down and talk about exactly. this? Gonna... Allegheny County Common please Judge Philip Ignelzi. I hope I'm pronouncing that appropriately. Scheduled two days of additional hearings on the issue later this month. Mm-hmm. That's from today's trip. Number four. Pittsburgh's Frick Park may soon receive historic designation. The 644-acre park in the city's Swiss Helm Park, Squirrel Hill South, Region Square, and Point Breeze neighborhoods is a visual landmark in those communities, said Sarah Quinn of Pittsburgh's Department of City Planning. It was nominated for historic designation by Preservation Pittsburgh, Friends of Frick Park, the Pittsburgh Park Conservancy, City Councilwoman Barb Warwick, and other community 
groups. Mm-hmm. And that's your top four. Very nice. It's a visual landmark, especially when a bridge falls down <laughs> on top of you. Right? Right? That certainly sets that it is apart. That's very much true. Okay, uh, uh, that's all that. And uh, let's take a quick break. Frick Park's my favorite park. In my park, too. Oh, my favorite park. It's so not beautiful. Like, not like the back if of you, my hand. Listen, if I'm talking to listeners who've never been to Frick Park, oh, go there. Yes. It's such. It's just so beautiful. Any day of the week is a fine time to visit mm-hmm. Frick Park. Prayer is wild. A vast, open silence. I don't quite know how to fill. We'll talk about that next. Sarah Sanderson joins us. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home here on Word FM. Hey, thanks for being with us. Kath, uh, are you ever settled in prayer? You kind of go, oh, uh, I'm going to pray. I've got this. Oh, never. Mm-hmm. Seriously, I, I have gone through so many phases and stages in my life when it comes to prayer. Even after all these many decades, yep. it's still what? A mystery? It is a mystery. Is it a hardship? So, sometimes I think, wait a minute, what am I doing? Am I trying to talk God into doing something? Like even after all this time, right. sometimes I ask myself what I'm doing. That tells you how mysterious it is. I think it's only natural. I mean, if you're, it's, if you're sincere about if your you're prayer honest, life. If you're really honest about right? what you're doing. Yeah. I don't want to have it to be like a laundry list or me going, hey, God, uh, can I have a favor? Or what? Everybody comes at it in these really weird s- segments, right? Right. Sarah Sanderson's with us. Uh, she's been with us in the past. She writes and speaks about faith, trauma recovery, and the uh, beloved life. Her first book is called The Place We Make. It was out in August. But here today to talk to us about Prayer is Wild, a vast open silence I don't quite know how to fill. Hey, Sarah, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So... Your so I, I confess that prayer has always been a mystery that I've gone through different stages of it. I've gone through I've, I've taken on different postures. I've uh, gone to different rooms. I've read different books. I've thought about it differently. Um, what kind have you gone through stages also? I have. And it's interesting that we're talking about prayer because I thought we were going to be talking about my book, um, but that's okay. I'm mentally shifting gears right now. And sometimes we have to mentally shift gears in prayer too. So yeah, let's talk about prayer. Excellent. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I have gone through uh, lots of phases. One recent phase that I've kind of been shifting into is um, actually drawing my prayers so i'm i'm kind of graphic novel style what i will draw yeah so i will draw myself my little stick figure you know face i'm not an artist but i will draw my little face and i will make a little speech bubble and write the words that i have to say to jesus and then i will draw jesus's face and i will wonder what he would say in response and I will write something down. And, you know, I I don't know if it's what Jesus actually has to say to me in the moment, but I have had some surprising conversations with Jesus in this way. It gets me out of my head and onto the page in a fresh way. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So why did you pursue something different? Um. Because so for a long time, as I talk about in that article, um, for a long time, prayer was was wrote or it wasn't even really the part of Christianity that I knew how to even enter into at all. Bible study was like, you know, I'm a school girl. I can get my answers right and do my homework. 
but prayer was an encounter with God. And as you said at the top, God is someone that we could not fully comprehend. And so I, I think for a long time, it was easier for me to just hold God a little bit at arm's length. Like I will go to church. I will pay my tithe. I will do my homework of Bible study, but I don't know how to enter into prayer. And then I really went through a, a crisis, a personal crisis, and it was coming out of that that I thought, okay, I've got, I've, I've just got to, I've got to know God. Okay, so Sarah, if you feel that way, and Kath feels that way, I feel that way, then I imagine a lot of people in our audience feel the same way as well. So wait, so then you're saying something happened to you that was crisis-minded that drove you in a different direction to try to consider this and figure it out? Yeah. Yeah, I was actually uh, hospitalized for postpartum psychosis after the birth of my fourth child. Mm -hmm. So that was a major, I mean, it was just like... I mean, I'm still, that was 12 years ago. Thankfully, I've been mentally stable since then with the help of medication and therapy. But I'm still thinking of my life in terms of before that happened and after mm -hmm. that happened. Mm -hmm. And in the aftermath of that hospitalization, I mean, I just, I was reaching for healing in a lot of different ways. And God put a lot of people in my life to show me different ways of getting in touch with God. And one person told me, I remember, she said, try being spiritually curious. And it was the curiosity oh. and the openness to different things that really helped me. And, you know, not every single thing was useful, um, but many things that I tried, like drawing my prayers, has turned out to be really fruitful for me. Okay, so when you say be, be cur spiritually curious, I... Love that. But before you and I, when you've been on the show before, we've talked about I had a similar postpartum crisis. And I also yeah. look at my life as before and after that uh, event. And I, before that event, I would never have, I, I would have thought spiritual curiosity was dangerous. Mm -hmm. I would have said it's mm -hmm. outside my orthodox reformed mm -hmm. beliefs. It was it like mystical was bad. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and I was yeah. going it to it was like new agey or something like that. Right. And yeah. And I'm not talking about be open to every possible spiritual thing that's out there. Right. Like I'm not taping crystals to my body. I am talking about what are the different strands of Christianity of faith in Jesus that have been expressed in different ways that I haven't been previously exposed to that can teach me something new. Hmm. So that was a long and varied path. It was a long and very path, yeah, and required a lot of people coming alongside me and um, modeling things for me in different ways. Um, and then, and then God showed up in different ways, and, and like in just undeniable ways, God speaking to me. It was like, oh, this is actually a conversation that we're actually having. You know, not that I can always, I mean, I usually cannot hear words from God, but things would happen. You know, Bible verses would get sent to me multiple, the same verse gets, you know, sent to me in multiple different ways in the same week or whatever. It's like, God is speaking to me. Mm. Which is so incredible. 
It is. I mean, it's it like is. the most ridiculous thing to even that's even happening to us is that you feel like, yeah. oh my gosh, all of this belief I have, all this faith I have, is actually in a person, and I'm not using that in yeah. the human sense, but is in a person who is alive and mm-hmm. communicating. Mm-hmm. How can that yeah. even be? How yeah. can that even be? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, Sarah, and talk then, about. No. So, so, you go, you go. Uh, I was going to take oh. you in a different direction, but I, I, I want your thread instead. Well, maybe it was the same direction that you, you were going to invite me on, but I was going to say just kind of moving a little bit towards the book and the journey that I've been on with this book. I think it was the preparation, the spiritual preparation that I had of going through that crisis, learning to reach out for God in new ways. And then God kind of took me by the hand and said, let's go on this journey together. And going on the journey of writing this book has been an incredible spiritual journey of its own. So, okay. So, so what's the book um, and talk a bit about the journey. Yeah. So the book is about my ancestors. Um, I have some family members here in Oregon. So Oregon was the only state to join the union with an anti-black exclusion law on its books. Really? Yeah. And I have some family members who are actually part of enforcing that law and saying, we actually want this to be a white only state. And when I found that out, you know, I'm, I'm white. I had never thought of myself as a person who like knew how to talk about the issue of racism at all. It felt like somebody else's conversation. But when I found out that that was what my ancestors, you know, in a sense, the legacy that I'd been given, I just thought I have got to figure this out. And so the book really threads the story of what happened in 1851 of this court case that um, really solidified that law for for quite some years. Um, And then also my story of my own journey as a white person, as a white Christian coming to understand how do I need to show up in this conversation about racism? What, What work do I need to do inside me? Um, to to be present to what God is doing in this subject. Wow. You know, we talk so often about the things that we inherit um, as great things. You know, my Mm -hmm. grandfather Mm -hmm. was a blah, 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 and my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, but none of our backgrounds are perfect because none of us are. Um, But how did you kind of internalize just a lot of, of, darkness in your background take ownership yeah yeah it's been a process um i think first of all it was finding out what happened and not being afraid to look um and Mm. then to connect the dots between what happened in the past and what's here in my own heart and really taking the time to unpack you know the the implicit biases that it, when when a, a random thought or a or a word or whatever it was would pop up into my head and I would think like oh you know that's that's racist and I I don't want to like even acknowledge that that's there or, you know we don't talk about those things but just allowing myself to recognize that yeah the lies that my society tells have landed in me and really going on a journey of repentance and lamenting. And then just asking the Holy Spirit to show me how to move forward. Um, And I'm not anywhere near being done with this journey, but just being willing to be on it and on it, on the journey, honest about it. And then with this book, hopefully inviting others to come along as well. 
The new book is called The Place We Make, Breaking the Legacy of Legalized Hate. We're talking to author Sarah Anderson, or Sarah Sanderson. Forgive me, Sarah. Um, That's okay. So let's take a break. Um, Could we hold off, come back and continue our conversation about this. And then I want to get back to the issue of prayer that we started with Mm -hmm. um, so that we can kind of finish that thread too. Sure. That sounds great. Terrific. That's Sarah Sanderson. The new book is called The Place We Make, Breaking the Legacy of Legalized Hate. We'll be right back. Sarah Sanderson is with us. She writes and speaks about faith. Uh, Her new book is called The Place We Make. It has been out since August. And uh, Sarah's been talking about the place we make and prayer. So, uh, Sarah, your journey into your family's background, um, and we have not read the book. We didn't even know the book was out yet. So please put us on the list and and send that to us because it looks fascinating. Um, It's a story. And for listeners that are just joining us, um, Sarah shared that she learned that there was um, a background in her family of significant racism going back to the founding of the state of Oregon. Um, And that, of course, I believe would be detailed in the book. But, Sarah, that had to have been painful work for you. Nobody wants to find that out about their family. Um, But it just made me think about our initial conversation about prayer and how finding out ugly things about ourselves and confessing them, like honestly confronting them has to be a part of our own prayer life too. I feel like if our journey doesn't include that in prayer, then it's only going to go so far. Absolutely. And that's one reason why I think that the church is uniquely positioned to be able to address the issue of racism. And I know that not every church is wanting to go there right now, but we in the church, we know how to talk about shame. We know how to talk about repentance. We know how to talk about grace. And so I think that the church in America is in a unique position to be able to address the issue of all the really horrific things in in our nation's past what do we do with that well we can bring it to jesus in prayer so that nature of prayer that that mystery the discovery the work the uncomfortability of it all of it it, it kind of runs parallel to the journey um to talk about those two things connected when you discovered this and went on to this journey obviously uh, intellectual and research but also your prayer life as well those two coinciding at the same time how did that work in your prayer life sir um you're absolutely right that this whole journey of doing this investigation and writing this book and then the aftermath has been a walk of prayer (laughs) um and it has been uh yeah it's looked a lot of different ways i i write a lot of my prayers i mean i'm a writer so you know i've been through many prayer journals just writing out and sometimes um like you say with confession just writing out my own sins um also praying with people, asking people to pray for me, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing a speaking engagement or something, really recognizing that I need people to be praying for me because my words really need to come from Jesus or they won't have, they won't accomplish what he's sending me to do. So Mm -hmm. yes, the whole thing has been a, a major walk of prayer. Yeah. 
when I was just beginning this journey, I was walking um, right around that time. I was walking on the beach, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Oregon coast. But yes. Oh, my God. It gets very foggy. And yeah. on this particular day, the fog was so thick that I could really only see my feet. I couldn't even see the houses back, you know, along the shore on the other side of the sand that I just left. And I just felt the sense of like God saying, I'm taking you on a journey. You're not going to be able to see where you're going, but I'm going to hold your hand. And that's what it's been. Fabulous. Yeah. Wow. That's Sarah Sanderson. Um, the new book is called The Place We Make, Breaking the Legacy of Legalized Hate. You can also read her article on prayer from Fathom Magazine. It's probably from a year ago, maybe. A few months. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, it's just, it's so excellent. Sarah, it's always such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Pleasure is ours. Hey, stay with We're just getting underway here on the ride home. We're going to take a quick break. We come back. The Introvert's Guide to the uh, Holidays. How to survive that when you would uh, prefer to stay silent. Stick around. It's the ride home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. Well, believe it or not, next week is Thanksgiving. I think it's taken a lot of us by surprise, especially if you're an introvert. This time of year is filled with a lot of dread, right? Mm -hmm. You think, oh, I mean, you like to be around your friends and family and those you love, but only maybe for a a limited amount of time. Wait, do do you consider yourself an introvert? I do. I consider myself an introvert. Which people would not believe. I know, because people think, oh, you're on the radio. Listen, Lexi, introvert? I I don't think she is. I think she's pretty much an extrovert, right? Let's see what Lexi thinks. I think I'm an extrovert. Extrovert, yeah, she's Mm -hmm. an extrovert, yeah. Yeah, so the best, so for people who are thinking, what is an introvert or extrovert? The way I've seen it defined is it's where you get your energy from. Mm -hmm. So do you get your energy from being with people? Or do you, like, I love to be with people. But I have to take time at home to regenerate my self so that I can do it again the next day. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so one of my kids is, is a deep introvert. And in the middle of something, he'll say, okay, I, I think I've had enough. I have to go now. Is that right? Right. Which the first time he said that, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, you know, how can you argue with that? Yeah. Right. He knows his limits. Yeah. Which I think is why. So so uh, this is from Relevant Magazine. They say this. Make sure you try to sandwich your holiday events between periods of rest, because being in a crowd of people, no matter how familiar they are, is really exhausting for introverts. Try to only say yes to events if you know that you can have alone time before and after. Okay. But yes, right. I think that would be terrific in the ideal world. Yeah. But how often that's not often possible. Well, do you think it is? I think if you know yourself, you know when to bracket time away from people. Right. It has to be. Otherwise, what do you I remember like being a kid and I had an Uncle Lou and my Uncle Lou was a really uh, he was just a maybe this is an older thing just a quiet man and so uncle lou would show up and blah 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 blah. there were seven kids all these aunts and uncles and there would be my uncle lou in a suit and tie sitting on a chair by himself and just smiling contentedly and as a little boy i was you know nine or ten years old looking at him thinking that is so odd 
But now I look back at that and think, oh, he knew his place, uh, that how he wanted to be, what his comfort level was. I think if, if, if you engaged Uncle Lou, it was enough, but he didn't have to sort of control things or mm. be the center of attention. Mm-hmm. It was enough to be present, but not to be fully okay. engaged. Okay, yeah. There's something to be said yeah. about that, uh, Yeah, right? sure, I get it. Yeah. Okay. All right, so... How do you, okay, so here we are. Most people would say, most people I think would would think that probably 80% of the world, maybe is that true, 70% of the world is extrovert versus introvert. You think? No. Really? No. See, I, I tend to think that way, that no. I think much more, many more people are extroverted than introverted. I bet it's 50-50. Really? I bet it's 50-50. Again, because it's not... I think sometimes people think that introverts just want to be hermits and, you know, live on a deserted island. Right. It's not that. It's that you love, I love to be with, I can be in large crowds. We spend our professional life in, in a crowds. lot of large crowds. Right. I'm fine with that. I really enjoy it. It's just that during that time of being in the large crowd, in my head, I'll be thinking, you know what? When I'm done, I get to go home, put my pajamas on, and sit on the sofa. Exactly. And it's just, that's what I keep coming back to. And so that's where I... The expectation. Yes. Right. And that's where I'm going to recharge. Okay. So in the article, they talk about, like I just said, my Uncle Lou, he was silent. The article says, be a good listener. So if you're an introvert, you don't necessarily have to sort of, you know, go out, but everyone's looking for somebody to listen to them, right? Because everybody wants to talk about it. So be a good listener and as an introvert, offer to help. Because the busyness of setting up the table or tearing down the table, it gives you an opportunity to do your thing and not necessarily engage the room. Right. Right? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. Take a break. I mean, have you done this before? I've done this before. You're in the midst of all, you know, hubbub of... I go, I go to the bathroom and just sit. <laughs> right? Have you done that? I just, just like take a breather. No, I, um, I need to go to like a room yes, somewhere have, and, yeah. and get away mm-hmm. from people because it's, you know, it's too much to bear. Right. Take a couple deep breaths and then, but, but it's, but does that mean that you hate no, the party? No, it's fine. Right? But I think that to me, when I'm going through this process, like all through the process, I'm judging myself for my lack of fit, my, my lack of engagement, mm. and then kind of like hating yourself because you're not like, hey, everybody, diddly boo, mm-hmm. look at this, right? So there's all this judgment that comes along with being, you know, w- wanting to be solitary. Okay, so you feel like I think so. You're hard on yourself because of your introverted uh, tendencies, probably. Right? Okay, because people expect one thing, and, and I, you know, I want to give less. Yes, that's silly. Sure, it is S- silly. It is silly. Why can't we just be ourselves and be content with that? Well, that's right. why we all need a therapist. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so Thanksgiving coming up for you is going to be... Oh, that's fine. Thanksgiving's what, hard fine. Hard or no? No, it's, I mean, it's easy. At this point, uh, seriously, I think at this point in your life, I mean, here I am, I'm in my, I'm in my 60s. If you haven't <laughs> grown to relax and accept yourself, especially with those most intimate with you in your family and extended family, then it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I show up, everybody knows, you know, everybody knows this, the routine by, by this point. You engage when you want to engage. You hang with the people in your family you're most comfortable with. Everybody else, you kind of just go about your way. Sure. Don't you feel the same now, way? Yes. Now, here's the thing. that 
again, when when you you and I have spent a lot of time together (laughs) over these many years and we've been in a lot of social situations Mm -hmm. and you and I are very conversationally we we love conversation this is what we do for a living right we love to hear people's stories we love to get to know people and see where who they are and where they're from and all of that Um, to me that's the best part of being in groups of people is being able to hear what people who they are what they have to say and that's what i'm looking forward to about my thanksgiving right but don't you in those moments there are times when i kind of feel unmoored like oh uh, 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 where am i what what what's about to happen i i get that way why because you're talking to somebody you don't know no or i just don't <laughs> hate to say it i just don't care <laughs> 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 is that what happens when you talk to me? Uh, no, I'm just I'm not. I'm just being perfectly honest. This yeah, is yeah. who I am here. Right. I'm being transparent. Sometimes you go, I got nothing. I just right. have nothing. Right. And more. And, and again, it might be an age That's, thing. And it could. And it's an. And it's. It is an introvert thing because I uh, when I am in a, a uh, like if if we're doing uh, like a day long event or something at work, I reach a point where I my I gas tank is empty. Right. Because probably I haven't had the time to just sit and take a breath and, like, recharge. It's just a lot. I don't know. So the holidays are on us, and, you know, so what? Offer some help. It's okay to be silent. It's okay to be silent. I think offering to help is a really great idea. If you don't want to talk to somebody, or if you just feel not. Not want to. It's not want to. If you just feel like you're just worn out. Say I'm gonna I'm gonna go start the dishes for you. Yeah, believe me, the mm. host would be grateful. Heck yeah, for such a thing. Let me soak those things. Yeah, right. And and just asking questions and listening to somebody else is great. I agree. All right, we need to take a break. When we come back, um, what about the people that just complain? The loudest voice. I mean, are you sick of those people? Are you great for, grateful for those people? I mean, the bottom line is those people are changing what's going on around us. So we'll talk about that next Thursday edition, The Right Home. One person's complaint has silenced the church bell that has chimed every hour for 200 years following a single noise complaint. This is uh, from Scotland, a 24-hour ringing bell. So it rang once every hour at Beth Parish Church in North Ayrshire in Scotland has been stopped after a resident complained to the council's environmental health department that their sleep was being disturbed. The Church of Scotland has now stopped the bell between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. after the North Ayrshire Council suggested halting the ringing overnight. Now, a local petition has since been launched to restore the chime in the clock tower. However, the Church of Scotland said its members were empathetic and recognized how low-frequency noise can be disturbing for some. Oh, my gosh. So the bell continues to chime on the hour between 8 a.m. and 10 p.m seven days a week. Beth Parish Church opened for service in August of 1810. Mm -hmm. The church bell was given to the church by Robert Shedden, who lived in London, but was a native of Beth. The complaint, apparently, uh, this is from Sky News, reportedly made by one new resident of the town. I don't know. That's infuriating. That is infuriating. Well, look, if you just moved into a town, I understand that low frequency noises can be upsetting. I get that. But that 
Bell and Church have been there a lot longer than you. Yeah. So if you don't like it, I understand. So you're going to have to move. You, I'm sorry. You're just just move. You would think that before you moved to the area, you, you would have heard that bell and known that it might have been trouble for you, right? Yes, uh, exactly. I, I, and who are the people who are involved in, in county or whatever uh, district administration who said, yeah, okay, to one complaint, one person? A Church of Scotland spokesperson said, quote, embracing the biblical teaching of love thy neighbor as thyself. We uh, have taken the environmental health suggestions board and the clock uh, will not sound between uh, 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. I'm sorry, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. They're trying to be good neighbors. To what? Okay, I, I see now they pull out the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I, They're just being good neighbors. Okay, I understand that. But the the person who's complaining could also be a good neighbor. There, I mean, you are a newcomer to this whole community. I wonder... Why are you... Why do you feel like you are entitled to alter something that has been in place since 1810? Maybe it goes back to the vital, uh, vitality of the church itself and it's outreach in the community. Maybe people go, well, I don't go to church anyway. So the church, the bell, it's neither here nor there to me. It doesn't really mean anything to me. Right? Maybe it's, maybe it's part of that. Yeah, it could it's be. It's a social thing. It could be, which is <clears throat> more tragic than the fact that the bell isn't clanging. I wonder, I wonder how powerful, I wonder how powerful, I wonder how strong the Church of Scotland is in this, in this community. Right? Because don't you love to hear a church bell? Listen. When I, I think that was my single, I think it was my single favorite thing of being in Europe. Hearing all the church bells. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which, and, which they, is, and old bells sound different. Sure they do. Than new bells. And so, uh, you know, all these little, I was in these little teeny tiny towns in Germany. I was never in a big city. Those bells are so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. They are, it's just incredible. But you've said this. I mean, even in the towns you were in, the churches, even though the bell sounded, the churches were largely empty. Mm-hmm. So it was more of a social thing, less of a, a I think it was more of a historic thing. Because mm-hmm. they've always been there. They've always been there. Right. Yeah. So what about what's happened in Minneapolis recently, where there's a large Muslim population mm-hmm. and the call to prayer is now heard. And, you know, that was first sort of pushed aside. But then a lawsuit was put together saying, well, the church bells are out there, so we can also join the church bells. There is a difference in sound. I, yeah. there. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we've both been to Muslim countries. And my, the thing I have a hard time with uh, in in with listening to the call to prayer is just because it's broadcast on the crappiest speakers. You know what I mean? And it's just a, it's a, it's a, the fidelity of it. It's a, just a terrible sound, but I'm not trying to say that the call to prayer is terrible, but just the way it's broadcast is, to, is, is a lot to take. Well, it's a, it's a cultural thing. Uh, to me, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound pretty. Right. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, we're not di- used to it's it. dissonant to me. So it's not something I go, oh, uh, that does, you know, I I invite that into my life somehow. It it doesn't. But I don't know how, I don't know how you argue that in Minneapolis. You you don't. You don't. Because. Uh, Unsuccessfully. Yeah. If you you tried to stop the call to prayer. Right. But the call to prayer, um, that happens like a church bell, doesn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not as often. Well, depending on the church. Yeah. Depending. 
but getting back to the the complainer, the the person who raises the complaint. I wonder if that person's anonymous. Probably not anonymous. People already know who the person is. I I just I find that really annoying. <laughs> However, there is a good side to it as well. And I'm reminding myself of that because I saw this article in uh, Pittsburgh Magazine today um, that tomorrow Duquesne Light is going to unveil its new 60-foot Christmas tree at Point State Park. Oh, wait. No, okay. Wait. No, wait. The, the, the tree wasn't there last year, was the it? The tree was not there last was year. Was it just last year or was it that a couple might have years? been two years. I don't remember. Wait. Was it there last year? No. Okay. No, it was absent, at least. And there was a complaint. Wasn't there a reason that the... It says, no, that replaces one that stood at the point each holiday season for more than 30 years until 2021. Okay. So last year was the first year. I thought it was more of a a social thing that somebody objected to the tree itself as a you know as a symbol of Christmas. Well, the reason so, no, I don't think that's what it was. The as I understand it, the original reason it was shut down was because it was a state park, and there were regulations about it being a state park. But but a Christmas always, tree doesn't it, symbolize it's Christmas. All, it's, but it wasn't about the symbol. It, it was something about the energy usage or something like that. Oh, what? Okay, let me read here from Pittsburgh Magazine. Okay. Named the Three Rivers Tree, the new tree is designed with various sustainability features, including more than 22,000 LED lights. It uses water ballasts as its foundation to protect the grounds of the park. What? The design also incorporates fun, vibrant colors and images... In 15-minute cycles that symbolize the winter and holiday season. The new tree, here we go, is the result of a public backlash that occurred after the State Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, which manages the park, they announced that it was retiring the tree, citing the need to better preserve the historical grounds where Fort Duquesne stood. Come here, break. Listen, that's what they said. There's a fountain there. I'd listen. The announcement spurred Pittsburgh native Peter Linko, and this is somebody who made a stink out of it. So this is, uh, this is how I am telling myself that complainers are not always wrong. Mm-hmm. Peter Linko created a Change.org petition that collected more than 10,000 names urging the tree to return. Let beauty we have all experienced be there for generations to come, the petition read. Bill Peduto, who was mayor at the time, also wrote a letter uh, to Secretary Cindy Adams, done uh, urging her also to save the tree. The tree, listen to this, was slated to be gone forever. Uh-huh. There was no plan to design a new one, says Linko, a local community activist. The power of the grassroots from every demographic came together and made their voice heard. We are grateful that Duquesne Light and Point State Park listened to the people. Excellent. He said his passion for the tree started when he was a young child, seeing that beautiful beacon of hope that has been shown every Christmas season since 1988. When I started the petition, I did it for future generations to experience the same joy of Christmas I did as a child, even though I have no children. Hmm. In response to the petition drive, Duquesne Light sought input from the community for a new energy-efficient modern design. It took two years to create. A local Carnegie Mellon University alum submitted the winning design. Great. Fabulous. So how about that? We're excited for the new iteration of the holiday symbol, said Duquesne Light. Right. So Peter Linko didn't necessarily complain. He became, as you said, an activist, right? Yeah. Well, he kind of complained. and 10,000 plus joined him. 10,000 people decided to complain, too, and joined him. Uh So we're going to have a Christmas tree again. So what's the deal with the images? I don't know. What is it like? You know those things like they're on somebody's house? Yeah. That's that's all I can think of. Well, well, thank goodness the uh, Christmas tree is back up and running. 
Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the 5 o'clock hour of The Ride Home. We are happy that you're with us here today. Another beautiful day. Well, they say record-breaking temperatures, 65 degrees Listen, today. it is so gorgeous outside. Mm-hmm. It is just beautiful. The 16th of Isn't December. that great? I love it so I love much. it. Yeah, we were talking about winter going, oh, what are your winters like? Who is that conversation? Oh, that was with Michael Woolworth yesterday. Yeah. Right, saying, oh, well, winters here have been less than, right? Mm-hmm. He's from Chicago. You can imagine how brutal Chicago winters yeah. have been. Yeah. I'm not... Like, this weather is so terrific because mm-hmm. it's warm during the day, but at night it gets pretty cold. It does get chilly. Yeah. Huh? So yeah. I think it's like the best of all it possible worlds. Hey, uh, uh, this will make me sound like, you know, from a, uh, the Victorian era. But when I was in first grade, from uh, first grade forward at the school that I attended, all boys had to wear ties. You're kidding. Mm-hmm. All boys had to wear ties. And the girls wore uniforms. Uh, little uh, blue pleated, uh, you, you know, uniforms. And they, actually, they wore ties as well. Little sort of like weird bow ties. So I wonder about uh, about wow. the, the life of the tie. I remember, you know, being, I don't know, eight or nine years old and my father teaching me how to tie a tie. Mm-hmm. Now, the weird thing was, it didn't really make a difference, you know, uh, if the tie, like, you know, Tie fashion is that the bottom of the tie should hit a, at the belt, mm-hmm. uh, maybe just above the, the end, or some people would go a little further down depending mm-hmm. upon the length of the, the your body. Uh, later on, like in the seventh grade or eighth grade, the more fashionable boys would draw; uh, they would make a gigantic knot that was like the size of a cantaloupe almost, mm-hmm. and then your tie was only like a two <laughs> inches long. Right, like, uh-huh. Which was like sort of your way of rebelling. I was going to say, that's the only way you can rebel. It was, right. So, uh, of course, since uh, Casual Fridays came into fashion... COVID? COVID, essentially, crushed the tie, right? There are many people who will never even learn how to tie a tie, let alone wear a tie. But there's an article in uh, yesterday's New York Times, Will the Tie ever make a comeback. And so the fashion critic for the time says, he says this, quote, it never pays to sound the death knell in fashion, since even the most seemingly defunct articles of clothing have a way of rising from the dead, particularly so in menswear, where the repertoire is limited Mm -hmm. and largely based on centuries-old customs. Every generation has a way of discovering items of dress that previous generations dismissed. Wide ties, they're in. Bell bottoms, yes, so iconically cool. Corsets, neato. Waistcoats, <laughs> funky. Spats, well, maybe not. Indeed, though, there is a difference between a garment becoming a novelty item and a garment that was once part of a standard part of your wardrobe. Yeah. Essentially, they're saying in this article, the New York Times critic is saying, that the tie will go the way of the wedding dress, once considered standard, necessary to a person's uh, life. Now, maybe for special occasions, people would wear... I mean, not everybody who gets married certainly wears a wedding dress, right? Yeah. So the tie... So you'd only wear a tie to some some life event like that. A wedding, a funeral, something like that. And then, of course, there's always those outliers who would consider a tie a novelty and wear it on a regular basis. How about people who wear bow ties? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't see that often at our church the other day. On Sunday, somebody wore a bow tie. Yeah. I thought, that's, that, that's that guy's sort of identity. That's his MO. Right? He always wears a bow tie. Right. Whether you like it or not. Yeah. I love a bow tie. Do you? Yes. I don't like a bow tie. Oh, I love it. Uh, to me, they're kind of a novelty. Oh, though. no. I love it. Really? I think it, so, you know what it looks like to me? Like a circus. Optimism. Optimism? Yep. Really? Yep. I think it looks like a clown. Nope. I think it looks like you are looking on the bright side. Well, I can see that. Now mm-hmm. that you do say that, I mm-hmm. guess so. That's true. Cheers me up. How about a regular tie? Your dad wore a tie? Did my dad wear a tie? Mm-hmm. My dad wore a tie every single day of his work life until they instituted Casual Fridays, uh-huh. which was a big deal. But he still wore a dress shirt, pants, and he shined his shoes every day. That's it, right? Shining your shoes. How many t- When my dad passed away, I inherited his tie collection, which for sentimental reasons, I still have oh, a I love few that. of his ties. I mean, one hangs in my room. It's a paisley tie from the 60s. That's awesome. It's very, very chic is what I think. When my dad passed away, and he wasn't like your dad, my dad probably had 100 ties. Is that right? Yeah. That went back, I'm sure, to his youth, ties that he couldn't get rid of. I was looking last night through uh, an old photo album of pictures of my grandparents when they were in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Men wore ties. And my uh, my grandfather was a security guard at the Alcoa plant in New Mm. Ken. That was his job he had for probably 30 years. And he wore, the security guards wore ties every day. There were several photographs of the four of them there. And they wore ties, you know, they'd tie it at the top and the tie would come down like to the middle of their chest. It looked ridiculous, but they were all laughing and like super jocular about it. I like wearing a tie. It's do you? It feels special. Hmm. Right? It feels like, like you're a cut ready. Above. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, you are ready. Okay, so when you go to a wedding, do you wear a tie? Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. When you go to a funeral, do you wear a tie? Yes. I mean, but although we were at an event recently where I chose not to wear a tie, and I was the only one probably who wasn't wearing a tie, and I felt a little sort of out of place. Okay. But then there, you know. I don't remember that. It just becomes... I mean, it's good news that I wasn't looking at you saying, you. gosh, John, what's your, you should have worn a your tie. tie. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I worked uh, at a high-end men's store in New York City, and there were a lot of ties on display. Now, if you would go to a, into a men's store, they're kind of like pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. Kind of like an antique, not necessarily. And of course, remember Kaufman's? I mean, you know, the Kaufman's men's store downtown Pittsburgh. That's where I worked. Yeah. In the ties? Mm-hmm. Men's t- furnishings. Ties were never cheap. No, they never were. But every season, new ties came out, it was, which I always loved looking through. I loved, I seriously, I did that job for five years. I loved it. Would you ever wear a tie? Me? I like to see women in ties. No, I think it's weird. I, I think, think it's, it's Diane cool. Keaton at the Oscars. Maybe a little bit, right? It's certainly a look. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, ties, I think they'll stay with us, maybe just less so. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, this is a contentious conversation, possibly. Yeah. What, co- confession. Mm-hmm. You have to go to the priest? Yeah. What's that? You don't have to go to the priest. Does it matter? Would you make a confession publicly, or is it better one-on-one or silently? Confession. That's next here on The Ride Home. When I was a little kid, I was like the only Protestant in a sea of Catholic kids. Where? In the North Hills. So I maybe could think of two other people who were not Catholic, who were in my elementary class, Mm -hmm. but everybody else was Catholic. 
And so after uh, the first Holy Communion in second grade, they started talking about confession. And I was like, wait a minute, what? They were talking about, oh, yeah, you know, we, we, you know, you go to the priest and blah, blah. And that was, you could have told me that, like, they went home and slept on their roofs at night. And I would have been like. Not unusual. It was just, it was so, it seemed so ridiculous. Have you ever seen a confessional? Yeah, I have. So anyway, that's how I started out as a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being like super duper Protestant, like extra super duper. I'm still Protestant. I still uh, am from the Reformed tradition, and I'm happy to be there. But I started to think more about confession. Maybe you guys have something. Yeah. Anyway, Charlie Camosi is back on the program. Dr. Camosi is professor of medical humanities at the Creighton University School of Medicine. He spent 14 years in Fordham University's theology department. He's the author of a bunch of books, including Beyond the Abortion Wars and Resisting Throwaway Culture. Charlie, we're glad you're back. How are you? I mean, it's good to be with you. Hey, John. Good. Good. All right. So you heard what I said about growing up in a, a, a Catholic area. Uh, being like one of just a couple Protestants, confession to me seemed like this crazy thing. Um, when did you grow up in the Catholic Church? Oh, I sure did. I very much remember <laughs> as a second as a second grader being scared out of my mind to go to the priest and tell him how many times I lied or was disrespectful to my parents or whatever it was back in the day. Yep. Okay. So what? Okay. So take me back to second grade. What was that experience like? Well, I, like I said, it was kind of terrifying, right? It was, I mean, everyone around me was was doing it kind of like you, but I was Catholic as well. My parents, my family was Catholic as well. So we went through, it was the prelude to First Holy Communion, which we talked a little bit about last time, and the idea of taking Jesus into yourself, like the body and blood of Jesus into yourself meant that you needed to prepare yourself. We talked, I think you even mentioned that Paul brings up his letters to yeah. worthily celebrate, right? And so this was part of it, that you had to have your first confession, your first reconciliation uh, before you had your first communion for precisely that reason. You needed to be ready. And uh, one of the things I remember was whether you go face-to-face or in front of a screen. I don't know if you had this experience, John, when you were growing up, but we had the choice. You could either go behind a screen but it was such a small school, everyone knew the priest would recognize you by your voice anyway. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and and or you could go or you or you could go with a face to face. So I did face to face, and uh, I could say more about it. But I guess I'll just stop there. Yeah, that's good. So we we did screen only, Charlie. I'm older than you. So at the time, and again, like you said, I was second grade as well, ready to receive my first Holy Communion. But part of that was before you are to receive communion, any time you are to receive communion, you must take confession to make sure that your soul is clean before the before the, the host comes into your life. So as part of that, we did this training. Now, what I remember, Charlie, about the training was we were able to make up sins. (laughs) So we would say, oh, bless me, Father, I have stolen seven cows. And of course, we all got a big kick out of it. Well, we're making up sins. But then, of course, when it became the reality that I think it was like the Thursday or the Friday before the Sunday when we received the first Holy Communion, all of us second graders went over to church, probably 50 or more of us, and one by one or two at a time, because the priest and the confessional, the confessional, the priest would sit in the middle, and on either side of the priest were two little boxes 
boxes. You went in. The box was dark. And then when it was your turn, the priest would slide open a little door. And behind this veil was the priest. And then you would enter into, bless me, Father, it has been this many times, it has been this long since I last received confession. And then you would go through a litany, a, a process, Charlie. Can you talk about that, about the sort of like the liturgical lead up, uh, and maybe not a prayer, but there is a litany that you follow along with, yeah? Yeah, there's different prayers that you say. You make an act of contrition at the end, which there are formal ones, or you could use something from the Psalms. I use the you know, make us as white as snow psalm usually at the end, uh, make, make me a pure heart, oh God, that one. Um, and then uh, the priest blesses you and, and uh, absolves you from your sins in persona Christi. We talked about this also with, you know, Eucharist. The, in the Catholic world, the priest acts in the place of Christ. Um, and and that's what's happening here. There's no power of priests to forgive sins, right? Only God can forgive sins. But it's interesting, you know, one of the things that I imagine Protestants find perplexing is they can't see any biblical evidence of this. But one of the things I like to point to as a Catholic who cares a lot about the Bible is uh, Jesus appears to give his inner circle the power to forgive sins, right? To mm-hmm. Or at least through him, right, have the power to forgive sins. Whatever yeah. you you hold loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you hold bound on earth will be held bound. Yes. In heaven, and Catholic, and Catholics believe that this is something that's been passed on. This power has been passed on throughout the generations, and and it wasn't just to the original twelve, which is a classic Catholic Protestant distinction. But at least that's if folks are wondering where we point to here, that's that's where we point. Yeah. Okay. So going through those litany of sins, Charlie, requires an examination of yourself, right? I mean, you know, before yeah. you enter in the confessional mode, you have to think, okay, the, since I've last been to confession. What have I done? And to me, I think that's the big distinction, one of the big distinctions between a Catholic confession and a Protestant confession, that there is a deep and searching inventory of your failures before you become before you come before God to ask for forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's meant that's done for a very specific reason, I think. Also, if we just can sort of like before we go to bed at night, just casually say, oh, I'm sorry for my sins, God, that's good and important. But a formal process by which we, again, do what you just said, like engage in this introspection. One of the big problems with uh, with every human being, including the three on this conversation, all of us is is pride, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's difficult for us to come to terms with what we have done. We tell ourselves stories about why it's okay or why it wasn't so bad or why if I don't do it again, you know, it's fine. But one of the things that confession makes you do is, or at least if you do it properly, is to come come literally to Jesus, have a come to Jesus moment here and say, you know, I, I need to be honest. I need to be forthright. I need to be clear. And I got to tell both of you, I don't know if you had this experience, John, growing up, but like even after second grade and still to this day, after I'm done, I have this unbelievable feeling of, I don't know what to call it, cleanliness. It's not quite something like that, but it's light. I don't want to say pure. It's it's a, yeah, it's a very light feeling, right? You, you almost want to like skip out of the church, yes, right? It's yep. like a joy like of, uh, you know, that this is, and what you just described in many cases is not joyful, right? What you just described is really awful in some ways. It's coming to grips with some things you really don't like about yourself. But but, but then you're absolved it, of it, your but, sins. Yeah, yeah. And there's something to think about saying it out loud, too, that's different, right? It's 
one can do it in the privacy of your own bedroom, right? Or on a walk or something in prayer with God. And that's good. And that's important. That's real. But there's, I don't know, Jesus gives us multiple ways to, to engage him, right? Not just through prayer, not just through, um, you know, the Eucharist, not just through where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. Like there's multiple ways Jesus comes to us. I think there's multiple ways Jesus makes his forgiveness known to us as well. And I agree. At least as a Catholic, as Catholics, this is a way we believe that Jesus makes his forgiveness known to us. Mm-hmm. Charlie Camosi is with us. He's the author of Beyond the Abortion Wars and Resisting Throwaway Culture. Okay, Charlie. So the Protestant church that I attend, uh, there is a a, a moment every Sunday where there is a a, a call to confession. And and so then, you know, there is this sort of a litany that's that's talked about. And then we have a moment of silence. And to be honest, you know, in that moment of silence, you are supposed to, like, review your sin. I'm just getting started, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the moment is over. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's just like it's, oh, yeah. it's way too short. Oh, I feel the same. It's way. way too short, and I need some time to ramp up because I think it's so unfamiliar for a lot of us that you know, if you want to really truly engage the God of the universe and look at your you know the wretchedness of your own self, and then go into that, and then. <laughs> And there's something to be said about kneeling as well, Mm -hmm. that I humbly submit myself to that. And only then do I feel somewhat cleansed. But, you know, the process of what you're talking about, Charlie, saying it out loud, there's a power in that as well. Yeah, I, and it's not just you guys. I don't know if you remember from Catholic Mass back in the day, John, too. We have something like that at the beginning of every Mass where you're supposed to sort of med- meditate on your sins before we begin the, the process of, of, of the Catholic you know, um, Mass. And, and it's a similar thing. You can barely get started. You can barely say, like, get into the mode of doing this, and suddenly we're off and running and saying, you know, mea maxima culpa. But at least that's something, right? I mean, so much of our... I mean, therapeutic society is about telling everyone that it's not really your fault. You know, there's all these reasons why this happened, and it's this reason and that reason. Well, it sounds like at least all three of us have this sense that Christianity calls us. There, I mean, there are real reasons why people do things that are structural, familial. I, I agree with all that. But at the end of the day, there's a responsibility that we have as individuals, that we stand before our Creator and our Lord and Savior and have to make an account of this, right? Mm-hmm. And then ask for forgiveness. And and to the extent that we do that, it's actually not bad. It's like, oh, Catholics have gotten a bad rap over the years, or for Catholic guilt is this really bad thing. Uh, maybe in some cases if it's taken to the extreme, but I don't think guilt about things that are genuinely something we need to reckon with is, is a bad thing. No, if it either. brings us to the joy, if it brings us to the joy of being forgiven in Christ, it, it's a good thing, actually, yeah. All right, so I have really come to change my perspective on communion. And I feel like I had and have a poverty of understanding about confession. I really do. I feel like, um, not that I was, I wouldn't say that my church tradition, well, maybe I would, maybe I I felt like confession was not really emphasized central. It wasn't central and we were never taught how to do it. And so even if, you know, from a reform perspective, if we don't need to rely on a priest for confession, still we need to figure out how to do it. And that was never part of our understanding. So, but it, Maybe, I don't know, a decade ago, I was reading, just minding my own business in James, the fifth chapter, and I came upon this. (laughs) 
Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Right? I was cruising along, and all of a sudden it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Amen. And I thought to myself, I don't do that. I think few people in the Presbyterian or, or any other any church. Any Protestant churches. Right. Do that. So, and to be honest, to be honest, there are it, it varies widely in the Catholic Church as well. This is something we went away with after the Second Vatican Council, which modernized the church. There are some churches which have brought it back, but there is very little sense in many Catholic churches that this is important for some of the reasons. Maybe it happened in Protestant churches as well. So, it's it's a it's part of the scriptural heritage of of yeah. all Christians, right? What you just what you just read aloud proves that. So we can all do better at this. Way so all churches can get better at this sort of thing. Yes. A good confession is excellent for the soul. Charlie, what you described, skipping out of the church, yeah. the joy, the, the lightness, lightness. Yeah. there's a lot to be said about that, isn't there? And how many people just have such a heavy burden? Like depression literally means to have this like horrible thing pressing down on top of you, right? Like that's not we're called to be joyful, right? That's who Christians are called to be. We have joy because of our relationship with Christ. And this is here for us, right? This is a resource for us to use. Yes. So maybe we all need to reconsider Mm -hmm. what it is to truly make a confession before the Lord. Yeah, I think so. That's Dr. Charlie. And with each other. And with each other. And with each other. That's so scary. We could talk about that next time. Like, that just freaks me out. Like, I love you guys, but I don't really want to confess to you. Oh, gosh. Charlie, thanks an awful lot. I got a church for you. Yeah, I got a church for you. Man, Charlie Camosi, check out his books, Resisting Throwaway Culture, Bioethics for Nurses, A Christian Moral Vision. Does this make sense? Uh, does what make sense? Getting a speeding ticket from a camera. And I mean a camera not controlled by a person, but just some robotic camera. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, for crying out loud. It makes perfect it sense. It does not. It does. It does. I mean, seriously, when you're speeding, you uh, look, uh, believe me, I've got as big of a lead foot as anybody, but you know, you're speeding. And so as much as I hate it, and I believe me, I have gotten a speeding ticket from a camera. I despise it, but it says 70 or whatever. It makes sense, Kath. It It does. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Look, if you can't put an authority figure on site... Then I'm no like I'm I'm not submitting myself uh, to the to the computer to the to the AI to. authority. I'm just not. Just do the right I thing. Know. I know. Don't speed. It. Look, if you look, if you <laughs> don't stop at the stop at the stop sign. Look, if you just drive irresponsibly. Believe me, I'm I, I'm John. I'm not the world's greatest driver myself. It, I break their laws. It it I feel like it's an infringement on my personal freedom. Well, it may be. I get that. But at the same time, you are breaking the law. What? 
You are. So then, oh, surprise, okay, so here that's comes. Why we have that's why we have people who are police officers, yep. who are in that position of authority, who are on site. I prefer the uh, the manpower of the police officers actually solving crimes or, you know. Oh, some, no, now let's so the, not get in. I'm like, telling you. Like, come on. Especially like in work zones where yes. people are like. Great. Put cameras there. Okay. So work zones, okay. Oh, okay. Maybe I else? would go with you on work zones. Oh, okay. Otherwise, that doesn't make any sense. You're wrong. And it I'm hacks sorry. me off. And I'm as guilty as anybody. Yeah, okay. All right. Does this make sense? Mm. Thank you. Sympathy. Birthday. Greeting cards. Cards. Oh. Right? I mean, I mean... The, when we were growing up, thank you cards, they were drilled into our head. Somebody gave you a, a quarter, all of a sudden I'm writing a thank you card. I'm like, so, birthday cards? I mean, who doesn't like to get a birthday card? Right. Sympathy cards? Who doesn't? Yeah, I'm, very, I think right? that, that was very helpful. But is me. that going away? Yes. Do cards matter? Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense, but I'm the worst offender because I don't send them. I never, ever send cards. Hmm. Never. But yeah... I mean, both of these things have been guilt-producing. Yeah, I guess I should send a card. It does make sense. I'll send you a card when you get a ticket. This from Relevant Magazine. A growing number of America's Gen Z population is showing a growing interest in living abroad, diverging from previous generational patterns. A new survey from an organization called Preply found that one in four Gen Z Americans have expressed a desire to live outside the United States. As of 2020, nearly 3 million people born in the United States were living in countries, different countries than the United States that they Mm. were born into. And no other country has sent as many immigrants to as many places. The reason... Fia, fueling the surge, according to Preply, to immigrate are as diverse as the respondents themselves. While high living costs and the political climate mm-hmm. in the United States are significant factors, it is the deeper longing for social programs like universal health care that have Gen Z considering the move. Additionally, 59% of respondents said that gun violence in the United States played a major role in their decision-making. A representative from Preply explained that the possibilities of moving has never been easier thanks to remote work. Quote, with the explosion of remote work, Gen Z and millennials are looking for ways to have the best of both worlds. They want to earn American salaries, which are on the high end of the international scale, while at the same time enjoying the social safety net provided by some countries in Europe, Asia and beyond. Gen Z has their sights set on places all around the world. However, the UK, with its cultural similarities and language familiarity, tops the list, closely followed by Canada, Australia, Ireland, and New Zealand. The trend apparently is not about short-term adventures, says Preply. A considerable number of surveyed group expressed a desire to settle permanently abroad. Okay. Well... What is that? One in four? That's that number seems super high. That's a lot. I mean, I'm not. You miss everybody. When you miss everybody. Yeah. yeah, but the reasons that they gave, I get. I mean, gun violence. Look. Come on. Listen. Uh, wait, there, I'm not saying we, that. we have a problem. Of course we do. In this country that other, I mean, other countries have other problems, but that's not one that other countries have. So I get that. Um, I also get 
the political climate because I look at our Congress and I think, come on, really, really, no, this is this is we have elected you to lead us. And this is how you are taking our confidence. Can you here's the deal. If you ever would consider going to live in another country. Yes. Then go visit that country and go. Oh, Mm -hmm. believe me. Despite our considerable flaws in the United States, we have it way better than most of the world. I way agree. better. I so agree. So, like, to pick up and go, I'm leaving the United States behind because of high health care, or I'm afraid of getting shot. Mm-hmm. I, it seems it seems extreme to me. It really does. Well. I feel like there's also there's a way to stay in your country and be an agent for positive change. I'm sure there, of course, rather you than a, be. rather than abandoning ship. Right. I definitely think that. I also feel like um, social media has a lot to do with this. Yes, of course, the boogeyman always. Does. I really, I, I mean, when you look in, on Twitter. Which now is called X, Whatever. which I can't. Why are you even, that? I hate because I, I hate it. So, why did you? Why did you? I just, know, you just fed into that. The I same did. Thing everybody I else did. Does. Formerly known. Formerly known as. Twitter. Twitter. It's so annoying. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, if you looked at that as your only uh, societal exposure, you'd want to leave too because it's an f- absolute disaster. Um, if you hang out on different social media uh, or different social media platforms, you probably get the same feeling because you end up in these silos, right? People, people that are like you, you hear the loop, um, you express dissatisfaction, then they feed you responses of people who are also dissatisfied and then you become even more dissatisfied and then you post more about that. And that's just how social media, that's how the algorithms work. Sure. So, I think that having like us living in an era where we've got Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, you name it. I just I I feel like all of our most negative impulses are just amplified, amplified and they're put in bold face and they're fed back to us over and over again. And it just makes us want to. Say, forget it. Well, you know, but yeah, but at the same time, anytime anything happens like that, people go, oh, well, I'm leaving this country. I'm never if that if X wins the presidency. I'm oh, well, lo- yeah. And yeah. of course, they never do. Of course. Barbara right? Streisand was going to leave never, when George W. Bush was elected. However, the idea of this, you know, you know, for a select percentage of people that you could work anywhere. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, how, how, oh, management comes down the hall and they go, hey, John, hey, Kath, listen, uh, you, we'd like you to move to Belize and you can broadcast this show every day from Belize. Are you going to say no to that? Right? Yeah, I've heard Belize is pretty nice, I've, but I wouldn't want to live he, For six here. months. Oh, for six months. Okay, well, okay, I'm, do, I'm doing right. that then. Oh, you know, we want you to go to, name a place, what, Toronto or, you know, yeah. Auckland. Where, where, I'd love to. I'd, wherever. I'd be Good. I'd be happy doing that. Me too. But I'm not moving there permanently. No, I'm not moving there permanently. I'm not moving there because oh, my my health care is bad, or right. Well, I'm but, afraid. Okay. I'm not moving because I'm afraid. Are is it really? No. no okay. No. Really? I bet I bet some people would. So okay. afraid that you okay. would leave this country. Yeah. That seems really crazy to me. It okay. Really well, does. what about what about health care? 
and its costs. What? Oh, you want to move to Canada for healthcare? No, I don't exactly. want to move to Canada for you know, healthcare. Exactly, because you know, because you have first-hand knowledge of that. But I'm telling you, if you're on no. certain Reddit threads, you're going to think that moving to Canada sure. is your best option. Meanwhile, uh, oh, I got a lump here. Ten months later, or a year and a half later, the right. doctor will see you now. Right. It doesn't work. Obvious flaws. Obvious flaws. Obvious flaws. Go visit and then decide. Okay. So this brings me back to my question. Mm. How much of this has to, I mean, 25% of young adults is an enormous amount of people who say that they want to leave leave the U.S. Yeah. You might say it, but are you going to do it? Okay. Probably not. But it's still a huge number. So I turned to the BBC.com talking about the latest story involving Nepal. You and I talked about it before the show today. Nepal has banned TikTok. And here's why. Hmm. Because, quote, its content is detrimental to social harmony. Amen. Isn't that the truth? Yes, it is. That's absolutely truth. uh, uh, Wait, say it again. Its content is what? Detrimental to social harmony. Amen. But Social it shouldn't media ju- period. Shouldn't just be TikTok. No, of course not. The decision comes days after the country introduced a new rule requiring social media firms to set up liaison offices in the country, which is super healthy. Because I'm sure if you're in Nepal, you are sick of millennials in America, you know, going off on something, sure. and your Nepalese 15 year old is completely impacted by what some, of course. you know, dude in New York City thinks. I'm driving down Fifth Avenue today through the heart of the campuses, right? There I am, Carnegie Mellon, University of Pittsburgh, Carlo. At every red light, you look to your left or you look to your right, there's kids waiting for the light and or a bus. No one's looking up. Everyone has their head in their phone. I'm telling you, it's like a, everyone, not not one person, but 10 people in a group. And you think, we're just, this is how it's going to be. Yeah, this is how this it's going to be. This is how it's going to be. We're all going to be looking at something else other than living in the present. We have forgotten how to live uh, yes. in the here and yes, now. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. TikTok has a billion monthly users, and it's been banned by several countries, including India. Earlier this year, Montana became the first U.S. state to ban it, while the U.K. parliament banned it from its network. Yeah. I mean, look, yesterday, President Xi's in town, mm-hmm. right? There he is in San Francisco. And he's like going, why can't we all be friends? Meanwhile. Meanwhile. Who are we I mean, kidding? Espionage, spying, you right. know, ripping off corporate The balloons secrets. that are flying yeah. across America. We should all be friends. Not to mention how they're treating the Uyghurs in their own country. Exactly. I mean. People have very short memories, right? Because, oh, well, let's all be friends. All those big tech executives showed up and paid $4,000 a person, $40,000 a table to fet, you know, the dictator, oh. not the president, but the dictator of China. Right? Boy, that's a. What is wrong with all the Americans like bowing down at his throne when Cash. he is in Cash. the U.S.? Did you see all those flags? Yes, flying? It yeah. Like we were yeah, in yeah, Beijing. I know. Anyway, don't get me started. Okay, Sorry. listen. Um, TikTok lags behind the likes of Facebook and Instagram, but its growth among young people far outstrips its competitors. More than 1,600 TikTok-related cybercrime cases have been registered over what? the last four years in Nepal. What? What's a cybercrime? Really? Yeah. F- over 1,600 TikTok-related cybercrime cases. Really? When you think about Nepal, you kind of think like, you know, monks. Yeah, well, right? it's a much bigger country than that. 
Yeah, that's smart. TikTok, highly popular with younger age groups with more than 80% of social media users aged between 16 and 24 using the platform. Pakistan also has temporarily banned the app at least four times since October 2020. Its online shopping service was shut down, shut down in Indonesia last month. Are you on it? No. Not on TikTok at mm-hmm. all? No. no. I don't have it. No, but Lexi is. Lex, get off the TikTok. <laughs> oh, I love TikTok. You do. Because she's a Gen do you think? Zer. Do you think yeah. it disrupts social harmony? Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Okay. She's leaving the country. <laughs> she's gone. I'm out of here, guys. She's going to go to Nepal, <laughs> and they'll take TikTok away from her. Yeah. Anyway, all right. You can take TikTok out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make a lick of sense, girl. I'll just tell you that right now. All right, take a quick break. Come back. Hey, this is some uh, really big news from Carnegie Mellon University. Now, if, if you're in the uh, Oakland corridor at all, you can see the uh, you know explosive growth of new building that Carnegie Mellon has done in the past few years. They're just, I mean, b- just gigantic projects. Listen, this is today from uh, Pittsburgh Business Times. CMU is ready to push forward with its next big campus building project, and it's bigger with a bigger budget than previously anticipated. This morning, the university unveiled the design for its new Richard King Mellon Hall of Sciences, a project seeded with a historic $150 million grant from the Richard King Mellon Foundation. Uh, It is going to be at the corner of Forbes and Craig. Oh, really? According to the announcement, the new development is now expected to total 338,900 square feet (gasps) and cost $252 million to build, twice as large as the project was originally conceived. Carnegie Mellon was considering what was still a a conceptual development. However, uh, the new project is gigantic. The Hall of Science has become a very Carnegie Mellon story. And uh, here's here's what it's going to include. Let me see. The Richard King Mellon Hall of Science will host the Mellon College of Science, along with the School of Computer Science science, as well as the new Institute of Contemporary Art, which is expected to be a critical hub for art, culture, and exchange in a location that neighbors the Carnegie Museum of Art, Natural History, within a short walk. Okay, so this is at the corner of Forbes and Craig? Craig, you know where that okay, is. Yeah, so it's right across where you pull in to, exactly. to park for the art museum. Yep. There used to be an old gas station there. Yeah. There was an old bar there. It's right by Central Catholic. Um, no, 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 not near Central Catholic. No, Central Catholic's in... No, this is this is South Craig Street, right? Yeah, and Forbes, right? Yeah, yeah, oh, not, yeah, you're right. You're right, you're right. Yeah, right. no, no, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, was thinking, so headed, I was thinking fifth. Okay, so out I'm, of Oakland. Yeah. So it's right across so from the that. the right-hand side of the right. museum. So that's just a ravine now, right? I don't even know what's there. Yeah, I, I mean... I think it, it's just a ravine. It's the hollow, right? Yeah. But that's... And then there are other Carnegie Mellon buildings which come up like a half a block down. Exactly, which used to be part of the... Uh, it was like the Naval Reserve building yeah. or something. Our friend yeah, that yeah. works there. right. The size of that building, 390,000 square That's feet. That's incredible. $250 million. It's going to be mammoth. So look, what's Carnegie Mellon known for? Computers. Right. It's going to house the School of Computer Science. It's going to be massive. Plus a contemporary art institute, which is like a new museum. So why, I'm not sure why we need that with the Carnegie Museum 
net right next door? It's my question. Well, because they can. Because they can. Because the money's in place. And, of course, the elite universities, a la Carnegie Mellon, they're going to continue to build and build and build and build. What's What do you think tuition's going to be at Carnegie oh, Mellon? Oh, Mike. Well, it's already 65, I think. Right. So... I'm sure within a couple of years, it'll be a hundred grand per year per student. That's so outrageous. What are know. we doing? I don't know. I mean, it's it's not Carlo. It's not Point Park. It's world-renowned. Yes, Carnegie right. So right. we should be proud of that, but it is for a very well, small, select, elite group. Sure is. But it's right here in our backyard. Okay, it's a good thing, I guess. All right. Speaking of local news, yeah. um, a series shooting in Pittsburgh next year. Is looking is looking for extras. Uh, It's called the Mayor of Kingstown. It's a thriller, season three. Um, It stars Jeremy Renner, and it's looking for paid extras to play town locals, prisoners, diner patrons, (laughs) nightclub goers, and more. Also looking, John, for people to be stand-ins and photo doubles. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been an extra? Never. It's long, thankless work. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh Yeah, it's it's really it's like sixteen hour days, mostly hanging around. Uh, you might make a, a hundred bucks or so. I mean, if you've never been on a film set, it's very interesting. You get kind of see, but truly, a lot of it is watching paint dry. Okay, well, that's mm. from uh, today's WPXI filming for Mayor of Kingstown. Lex, do you know this show? Mayor of Kingstown. Not uh, at all. Okay, yeah. Have it you runs seen it? from January to May. Okay, so it's of not 2024. It's not streaming apparently now. Well, it is. Oh, it, it's, it's shooting its third season, oh, so okay. the first two seasons must be out. All right, well, good. So that means officially that the strike yes. is over. Yes, which and is very, very good that news. all of that uh, employment opportunity is coming back Excellent. here to the city of Pittsburgh. Right, we need that. And also, our our Christmas tree is coming back to Point State Park. Fabulous. Well, it's a red letter day. Isn't it a great day? The Thursday. sun shines out, and we're getting our Christmas tree back. No, actually, it's dark. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.